Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 9 on Baptism. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Gold Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Matthew Zickler. He is pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Western Springs, Illinois. Pastor Zickler, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're honored to have you, especially to talk about baptism. I mean, is there anything more Lutheran and awesome to talk about than baptism? Well, there are uh, a lot of things, but it all relates to that chief doctrine of justification. We'll get into all of that, but this is one of my favorite articles to talk about, and so we're glad to have you on to lead us through that. Uh, As we get into this, though, even before we kind of get the connections from where we've been in the Augsburg Confession, things like that, let's go ahead and just read the article here, and then uh, we'll begin our discussion of this. So this is Article 9 from the Augsburg Confession on Baptism. And a reminder that on this show, we use Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Again, Article 9 of the Augsburg Confession on Baptism. Concerning baptism, our churches teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, as it says in Mark 16, 16, and that God's grace is offered through baptism, citing Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. They teach that children are to be baptized, citing Acts 2, 38-39. Being offered to God through baptism, they are received into God's grace. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists who reject the baptism of children and say that children are saved without baptism. All right, that is the entirety of Article 9 from the Augsburg Confession on Baptism. Pastor Zickler, go ahead and give us here some of the background how we get here in the Augsburg Confession, and how we begin to engage and understand what we're confessing here about baptism here in Article 9. Sure. So, with the Augsburg Confession, you know, this is, uh, as I'm sure you've mentioned, you know, a document that was given to the emperor in 1530. And, of course, if you're familiar with the timeline of the Reformation, you know that it really started with Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses in 1517, October 31st, 1517. And in the meantime, that time between 1517 and 1530, you'd had these other groups that had kind of piggybacked on the Reformation, so to speak. And in some ways, it was really gained notoriety with, with Swingley, Walter Swingley, who was in Zurich. And he began writing and he kind of, you know, if you think of Protestant churches, as I often tell my congregation, churches to the Protestant side of us as Lutherans, Swingley is really kind of where that starts in a lot of ways. But as he did that, there were some other people that joined in with that. One person in particular was a man by the name of Andreas Karlstadt. And Karlstadt was actually a colleague of Luther's at Wittenberg there. And when Luther was in the Wartburg after 
the Deed of Worms, you know, where he translated the Bible, that sort of thing, something we'll be, we'll be observing the 500th anniversary of here in, in the next couple of years. While he was doing that, Karlstadt was pushing through significantly greater reforms in Wittenberg. And uh, he was known for things like tearing down statues and that sort of thing. But one of the things that he homed in on at a point was the doctrine of baptism and understanding that baptism is merely symbolic. And uh, so you have Karlstadt doing that. You have a guy also by the name of, of Thomas Munzer. And these two end up being significant figures in what becomes called the Radical Reformation. So they sort of take what Swingley's doing and go that much further. And a part of what they do is to say that to truly be baptized, you can't be a child because you can't, you know, you can't confess faith. You can't necessarily know what it means to be a Christian and, and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, this is very much akin to to what we see in a lot of non-denominational churches in our day, uh, what you see in Baptistic churches, that sort of thing. Uh, now, as I say that, those churches today, they don't actually come out of the Anabaptist churches with the Radical Reformation. That would be more akin to the Amish and the Mennonites and that sort of thing. But that influence of not baptizing children does come out of this time. And so as the Lutherans are presenting this article, you know, they're presenting it as a statement of faith to the Roman Catholic Church, to the Emperor Charles V, who is Roman Catholic. And they're trying to say, when it comes to baptism, this is what we believe, and we don't believe that. We know you don't believe that. We don't believe that either. And that's why there's quite a bit of emphasis on the baptism of children here. They say, you know, we do believe that baptism does something. We believe it's necessary for salvation. Uh, we believe that God's grace is offered through it. And we believe that children ought to be baptized. And of course, as we speak for this hour today, I want to go through each of those points individually. But it's good to recognize that as the Lutherans, as they're making this confession, they're saying, you know, in essence, th these are the things that we, we really kind of agree with the Roman Catholic Church on. And it's over and against what the Anabaptists teach. Now, as I say that, what we'll also hopefully get some time to hash out a little bit is that the Lutheran understanding of baptism isn't exactly the same as the Roman Catholic understanding either. There's a lot of similarity, a lot of overlap, but it's not exactly the same either. But that's sort of the background of the article itself, you know, paving that, that middle road, as it's sometimes called, between the Roman Catholic understanding and those to the Protestant side of us. Yeah, I think it's really important that you highlight all of those things that we want to get to here today, you know, the necessary for salvation, the baptism of infants, and all of those sorts of things are things that we want to go deeper in. And especially as you say here too, you know, what we've got is on the one hand, we're trying to confess the unity with the Christian church on earth, right? And then on the other hand, we're trying to show either how that is opposed to what the Roman Catholic Church is teaching, as that's kind of in view here with the Augsburg Confession, but also what others who are coming out of the Reformation and kind of doing their own thing are doing as well. And we've got both of those at play here. I agree with you. It's probably much more the Anabaptists in this particular article than the Roman Catholics, but there are things to highlight. So we want to hit all of that for sure. As we talk about this, though, as we've been doing this series on the Augsburg Confession, you know, we're really looking to talk about the doctrines that are presented by each article as well. And so, of course, when we talk about baptism, there's some obvious things that come to us. You know, I think anyone who's ever spent any time in a church can know, okay, baptism involves water. And so we kind of know what that is and so forth. But I think it's important that even as something as common and maybe well-known and understood in some level, at least by looking at it, of what baptism is, I think it's important for us to actually begin our discussion here 
in defining what baptism is and how we understand that scripturally. So go ahead and give us kind of our doctrine of baptism here, if you will. Yeah, sure. One of the things that I remember learning in seminary that I so appreciated is the emphasis on Christ's words. And when we come to a doctrine, uh, you know, we come to the, the sacraments of baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, you can speak of confession in, in that that vein, and uh, and even in a sense, the office of the ministry. When we look at how we understand those, how we understand God giving his grace to us, giving that justification that was won on the cross to us, what better way than to start with the very words of Christ himself? You know, this is, baptism is something that's based on Christ's institution. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells them to go and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? How do you make disciples? You know, it's a, a language we have a lot in the American church is discipleship. How do you make disciples? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them all that I have commanded you. But, you know, there there we see this understanding that Christ is telling the church to baptize. He's telling them to baptize them. And, and, and the Greek participle there is ace, which often is translated in the name of, you know, usually when I'm doing my Greek work, I like to use unto for the word ace. And you'll see that sometimes in, you'll see it sometimes into. Uh, I like unto because it seems to fit all the uses of it. And so there's this understanding that when there's baptism, that it's this connection to the name, you know, and what's that name? It's not just in any name. It's not just God. It's not just, you know, a law or, or something like that. It's, it's a particular name, the name of our God, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see with baptism there that there's this clear understanding of water. And you, you know, you don't necessarily get that in what Jesus says there explicitly, but it's very implicit in the term itself. Baptism is application of water. It's, so it's in that term. And then it's with that word. And what's the word? It's that name, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So one of the illustrations I like to use with that is, um, you know, uh, Sean, you said, you mentioned that you've got kids. I've got four myself. So I've, you know, over the past uh, 13, 14 years, I've watched the Toy Story movies. I can't tell you how many times, right? And uh, in particular, I remember in Toy Story 2, where you get the cowboy toy Woody, who has been so, so allegiant to Andy, his, his the boy to which he belongs, but he's kind of losing his way in that and forgetting that, that he belongs to that boy. And so he, he goes, he, he kind of gets, you know, if you've seen the movie, you've seen he gets kidnapped and, and the, the other toys come and try to rescue him. And, and he says, well, I don't want to go back. I, I want to go. They're going to take him to this museum where he can be, you know, honored and gawked at by children for, you know, who knows how long. And uh, so he doesn't want to go back. And one of the other toys says, no, you belong to a boy. And he reaches down. And what the boy had done was written his name, which was Andy. What Andy had done was written his name on the feet of all of the action figures that he had. And, and Woody was one of those figures. And Woody looks down and that name had been painted over in the process of this kidnapping and all that. And he, he scrapes the paint off and what's still there the name of Andy, right? And, and I think that's such a great illustration about baptism. God speaks his name to us. We are baptized into, unto that name. And there that name is on us by that word, the word with the water. And, and when, you know, we can sin, we can lose sight of that and that sort of thing, but that word still stands. His name still stands upon us. And that's what, that's what we rely upon. We rely upon that, that word of promise that does what it says. And that's, that's what baptism is. It's that word of promise with water attached to it. You brought in the Christ command. And part of the other thing that we want to talk about here then as well is what it also delivers. 
because I think that'll get us into some of the language that we see show up in the confession here that we want to deal with, namely that necessary for salvation. But uh, I always, with my confirmation students, I always try to set them up and I say, why do we have the Lord's Supper? And why do we have baptism, right? And they usually get trapped by me and you know, they say, well, because Jesus said to, and I was like, so the only reason we do it is because Jesus said to, and of course, that's not a very Lutheran answer, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so uh, we want to also understand what benefits does this deliver to us more than just Christ's institution of it? How do we speak scripturally about those things and see those things at work? Yeah, that's a, a great point. Especially, I, I love the way that you, you you acknowledge that's not a Lutheran approach, right? You, you know, we don't just, uh, the, the Lutheran approach isn't, isn't law-oriented like that. It's not, we don't just do things because Jesus said so. I mean, certainly that's reason enough, but what we understand with our Lord, you know, what, what the cross portrays before our eyes is, you know, is that this is about God's graciousness and his giving to us. And so as we look at baptism, you know, I always think of what Luther says in the, the small catechism, you know, what does baptism give? Well, it works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal life of the words of promises of God declare. And of course, then it references there Mark 16, 16, which is whoever believes and is baptized will be saved and whoever does not believe will not be saved. So we see right there in the words from Mark 16, whoever is baptized, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So there's this element that it gives salvation. And of course, that's not the only place that salvation is tied to baptism. You see that in 1 Peter 3, 21, that's, uh, you know, as I still have friends that aren't, aren't Lutheran, that's the one that I always say, so what do you do with 1 Peter 3, 21? You know, when you, you want to say that baptism is, you know, is just a symbol. What do you do with 1 Peter 3? It says literally there, baptism now saves you. So I think as we look at how it gives salvation, again, it, it's helpful to, to understand that in view of, as Luther put it, forgiveness won and forgiveness delivered, right? And that's in particular, he, he talks about this in, in one of his works called Against the Heavenly Prophets. It's from, from volume 40 in Luther's works. And he says, what, what you see on the cross is where Christ dies for our sins. On the cross is where our justification is won. You know, that's where Christ dies, the death that we deserve. He suffers the forsaking by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffers that for us. And in the resurrection, is it says he was crucified for our sins and raised for our resurrection, or uh, excuse me, raised for our justification. Uh, Paul says that in Romans 4. And so we see that with the cross. But then in the word and sacrament, we see how God delivers that to us. So sometimes the theological language used for that is that there's this objective justification by virtue of the cross, but that comes to individual subjects and is received, we often say by faith, right? But how does God create that faith. Well, he creates it by the word, by baptism, by the Lord's Supper, right? Creates and sustains it by those things. So that's how we can understand baptism now saves you. Uh, in fact, as I'm on that passage, I want to read it a little bit more thoroughly and then we'll you know, get to some other aspects of this too. But uh, you know, you have Peter here in 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So we've got this connection to the cross there. And then he goes on, and he talks about verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through water. And I always think that's such an interesting connection there. Of course, there's the whole thing about him proclaiming to the spirits and 
you know, kind of unpacking what that means. That's another story, I think, for another time. But the connection he makes is to the time of Noah. And he says that there are eight persons who are brought safely through water. And of course, that reference there is to Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, right? So you have eight on the ark who are saved. And, and of course, the reason why, why I think that's so interesting is because when you think of the flood, you think of it as destructive, right? You think of it as this exercise in God's judgment, where you had this whole world and only eight people survived. You kind of, we kind of put it in those terms. Well, gosh, all these people and only eight survived, but that's not how Peter talks about it. He says eight through that were saved, right? And, and so you get this understanding that where there is this judgment against sin, that the flip side of that is salvation for God's people. And then that's the symbolism of the flood is this broader symbolism actually to baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And I, when it says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, uh, it says baptism as a type of this in the Greek. So there's this, what you call typology. You, know, you, get a, you think about a, a prototype being the first thing of a model that you're creating, right? It's a similar idea. You've got this model of it. And in baptism, you, you see it you see it played out, right? So you've got the, the flood, which is a model of baptism. So what does that baptism do? That baptism now saves you. And how does it do it? Well, not as a removal of dirt from the body, right? It's not just as though this water, you know, we pour the water on the forehead of a baby, right? It's not like that just washes dirt off the baby's forehead. No, it's, it's something much more significant than that. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we see this whole passage enclosed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know, that objective work of Jesus applied to us subjectively. But as we see then this appeal to God for a good conscience, as I'm reading that, I'm reading it from the ESV, the English Standard Version. If you happen to be there with your new international version, uh, you'll see it says something akin to a pledge to God of a good conscience. And of course, that's really confusing there, right? And this is something that I think is really helpful as we talk about, about the baptism of children, which we'll come back to. But, you know, when is it a pledge or is it an appeal? Well, the, the Greek word there is only used there in the Holy New Testament. And it means it's, it's akin, though, to another word that's used quite a bit when people inquire. You'll see this where people will inquire things of Jesus. The word is eperotema here. They'll eperoteo Jesus of things, right? They'll ask him things. So you could understand it almost in that same sense. It's an, an inquiry, an appeal to God. It's an asking of God for a good conscience. And so this is, you know, rather than it being a pledge, like saying, here, I'm standing on this, I'm going to do something. It's saying, you know, God help me, right? And we're saying, as the parents bringing the child, for instance, we're saying, God help this child. And we trust that God is the one who creates faith no matter what. God is the one who works in this. Baptism isn't a human work, it's God's work. And as he does that work, as he works that work through his word, then we have the application of what Jesus has done to us, upon us, right? So you start with that, that baptism gives salvation. And then you look at what else the New Testament says about baptism, and there are a number of wonderful promises. For instance, one I often point to is Romans 6. It says in Romans 6, beginning in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And of course, uh, you know, Luther references that passage in the 
fourth question of baptism in, in the small catechism. He says, what does such baptizing with water indicates? Well, it indicates that the old Adam in us, by daily contrition and repentance, should be drowned and died, that a new man would daily emerge and arise to live before Christ in righteousness and purity forever, right? That this is, as God baptizes us, there's this water by which we are buried with Christ's death. And as I preach that to my congregation, I make that point, you know, that means that your sins were joined to Jesus and buried in his tomb. That when he rose free from sin, death, and the devil, that he left your sins in that tomb and no longer are they upon you. You know, you're joined to him so that you get his righteousness and he gets your sin. Of course, and you see that not explicitly in a baptismal context, but just generally speaking, where Paul says it in um, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, you know, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. This is totally connected to this. This is that cross of Jesus applied to us and us receiving his righteousness, our sin being buried with him, and then us being raised with him in a resurrection. And so this gives us new life. You know, that's one of the things that we recognize with baptism. There's new life in this, and we walk in that new life, which means, you know, as we think about identity, that's obviously a, a hot topic in our time right now is identity. You know, how do you identify? Are you male or female or, or something in between? Are you, you know, are you black, white, or, you know, something that's neither of those? Are you cisgender or not gender normative? All these, all these identities. For the Christian, we see that we have an identity, and that's in the resurrection of Jesus. And we have a new, a new life in him. And of course, as you were reading, Sean, the passage from the Augsburg Confession there, one of the references it gave was Titus chapter 3. It, it, it says there that it actually um, gives, and that God's grace is offered through baptism. It references Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And it says there, but when, God, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And of course, that's just the gospel, right? Jesus died for our sins. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to merit that before God. It's all by his mercy. But how does this happen? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, there's this language there of washing, of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You know, regeneration, you're, you're made anew, renewal. You know, that it's new life. Uh, you know, think about with regeneration, you think about the genesis of something, right? This is regenesising it, re recreating it. And of course, as you think of Genesis, you, you see the, the Holy Spirit here, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, and you see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters of the deep in Genesis 1, was 1-2, I think. So you've got this connection between the spirit and water all the way back there. And here it is. There's the spirit with the water coming to us and, and making us anew, you know, burying us in the death of Jesus and raising him, raising us in his resurrection. So it saves us. It gives that union with his death and resurrection. And you, and you see other gifts too. Uh, you see that in Galatians 3, that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness there. It says that in chapter 3, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, have been clothed in Christ. Uh, you know, that's a theme you see throughout the Bible. You see clothing. You, you see when Adam and Eve fall into sin, uh, what's the first thing they do? Well, they try to clothe themselves. They try to put on their own righteousness. And as they do that, it falls short. And they're ashamed before God. They hide from him. Their conscience is, is 1 Peter 3 said that this is an appeal for a good conscience. 
Adam and Eve didn't have a good conscience. You know, they were paying, they were tainted in their conscience. And so they hid from God. But then what did God do? He clothed them in the animal skins and he gave them the better clothing. I often, you know, as I'm teaching that to make the point, um, I, I don't know that I felt a fig leaf, but I, I've been told apparently a fig leaf is very coarse. And so I was, the point was made to me that, you know, that here they put on these coarse fig leaves and it's almost like an, an attempt at atoning for their own sins. They know that they should be penitent for them and, and, and they know that, that it's, it should be uncomfortable and that sort of thing. But what does God do? He comes and he gets them animal skins. And I would say, if you felt an animal skin that's, it's nicely tanned, it's way softer than a coarse fig leaf, right? And I figure if God's the one tanning the hide, it's going to be perfectly tanned and it's going to be way, way better than any tanned hide that we can experience. And yet that's what God gives them. And he clothes them in that righteousness, you know, just like and we represent this, of course, with vestments, you know, we, as pastors, we have our clericals that are black representing sin. And there's this covering over in the, the white alb, or if you, you know, if you wear a cassock and surplus, you've got the, the black cassock representing sin and the white, the white surplus that goes over that, representing that clothing in Christ's righteousness. And to kind of present the unity of, of the Bible altogether in this, you see it all the way in Romans, uh, or excuse me, Revelation 7, where there's the host arrayed in white, as the hymn speaks about, the whole the host arrayed in white. And there, there we are, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And then, and finally, kind of to, to wrap up what it gives a passage that connects to the Old Testament here, as 1 Peter 3 does, but in a different way. In Colossians chapter 2, you see Paul talking to the Colossians, and he says, in him you were, all, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And of course, this is, you know, that's a, the circumcision is the, what's often called the sign in the Old Testament that you're brought into God's kingdom. And as you have that, then, you know, the circumcision was a cutting off of the flesh. And so it represents that you, you cut off the sinful flesh, but elsewhere it speaks of, of a circumcision. It says, be circumcised in your hearts. And there's a cross-reference there to Deuteronomy 10, 16. And I think that's where you actually find that. But yeah, in Deuteronomy 10, you have the circumcision of the heart. And in 16, it says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And of course, you know, that doesn't mean literally cut into your chest and cut something off your heart. It's that the circumcision that isn't by hands, as this says. So in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision with, made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And how does that happen? Having been buried, this is verse 12 in Colossians 2, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And I love that passage, not just because of the theology of a circumcision with it, but because in that we get a great insight into baptism uh, it's so easy for us to put baptism and faith at conflict with each other. And that makes it, you know, there's no breath there. You were buried with him in baptism and you're raised with him through faith, right? The thing that puts a conflict between baptism and faith is our own sin. You know, as we get into discussing the baptism of children, one of the things that people always say is, well, look at how many kids were baptized that fell away from the faith. Well, the conflict there isn't between baptism and faith. It's between the sinful nature, which has rejected those promises of baptism in unbelief. You know, those promises still hold true, but the faith that does not cling to them rejects those promises and doesn't get the benefit. You know, the objective justification still stands, but the subjective receiving of it is what's broken down. Properly speaking, there isn't a conflict between baptism and faith, and that's what we see here. So we see the baptism gives salvation, unites us with Jesus' death and resurrection, you know, unites us with Jesus himself, brings us to Jesus, 
and clothes us in his righteousness and gives us that circumcision of the heart that is the new life and faith. It's a really great foundation to lay here as we're going to take a break here. But on the other side of the break, we want to dig into some of these other phrases that come up that you've been referencing. And we certainly want to understand, you know, how we can talk about this baptism being necessary for salvation. We'll pick that up directly on the other side of the break here. But then also the baptism of children as they bring that into the Augsburg Confession here as well. So that's what we'll pick up on the other side of the break with our guest here today, Pastor Matthew Ziegler. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUL. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with our guest today, Pastor Matthew Zickler, and we're looking at the Augsburg Confession, Article 9 on Baptism. And Pastor Zickler, in the first half of the show there, you gave us a great foundation of talking about baptism. I always love when there are catechetical connections brought in on this show. I love having the catechism as our basic foundation for how we engage the very simple teaching of our faith. And especially uh, the connections that you brought in there in terms of baptism are great reminders for us that we see that play out in our confession here in the Augsburg Confession as Lutherans. And with that foundation then, as we jump back to the Augsburg Confession here, specifically the language there that they use, one of the things that you've highlighted that we definitely want to talk about here is that they use that phrase, necessary for salvation. Well, what do we mean by that? And in what sense is baptism necessary? I think it's really important to understand that. And I think flows forth really nicely with what you set up for us in terms of what benefits baptism gives to use that catechetical language there for us. Yeah. And that's, I have to admit, so kind of to put you know, my own experience with this, I was not raised Lutheran. I grew up, uh, I actually grew up Roman Catholic and, but became Lutheran sort of a, a, via American evangelicalism. And as that was the case, that language of the necessity of baptism was something I really balked at. And I think a lot of people do. And I, and I think, you know, just kind of simply speaking, one of the reasons people do is because you know people who have died without baptism, right? Uh, in particular, you think about, well, what about the woman who, who miscarries? That child couldn't have been baptized. You know, does that mean that there's no hope for salvation for that child? Uh, you know, what about if, if a person does come to faith? And they're, they're planning to be baptized and they get, you know, of course, that's the hypothetical. They get hit by the car as they're walking in. You know, is God not going to save them because they weren't baptized? That kind of thing. So I think it really is a, uh, it's a very real concern and it's a, and it's a real concern pastorally. It's a real concern for Christians to understand. So, so yeah. So what, what do we mean by the necessity of baptism? Well, I think that there are two things that are helpful for kind of gauging or gaining, excuse me, an understanding of what we mean here. The first is what Pieper says, you know, we, as a seminarian, we learned doctrine from Francis Pieper. He was a, a teacher in the earlier days of the Missouri Synod. Uh, one of the things that he, the phrases that he uses 
is that we don't understand baptism as an absolute necessity. It is not as though that no person who hasn't been baptized has any possibility of entering into heaven, right? That it's not as though that there isn't, you know, a path to heaven outside of baptism, right? So I, I want to be careful about how we understand that, but it's not as though that every person in heaven will, has to experience the rite of baptism. So I think, I think that that's important to note. And the way that we can understand it then kind of in view of that language is to say that when we speak of baptism and its necessity, you know, as we talked in, in the first portion about, as I made that point that, you know, as Lutherans, we don't want to relate to God according to law and command, but according to the love that we see manifest in the cross. Uh, so we want to put baptism in that same framework. Yes, baptism is commanded by Jesus, and that is a part of why we do it. You know, Jesus said so, so we do it. And Jesus said to baptize all nations, so that's why we do that. But when it comes to what baptism is, it's gift, right? It's the gift of God, and it's the gift that he gives to us via his word of promise. And so we want to understand the necessity as one of promise more so than law, right? Yes, just like as Lutherans, we say we do good works because that's what God wants us to do. You know, that's would have been the article on good works that you've, you've already talked about. We do good works because God wants us to do. We baptize because God wants us to. That's absolutely true. But we should view it in terms of the fact that it is this gift. So why would we withhold this gift? You know, so baptism becomes necessary because we don't want to withhold God's promises from our children, for example, as we're, you know, there's a great lead into the conversation about baptizing children. Baptism is necessary because it is this gift that we don't want to withhold. And so I think that's really helpful for understanding that language of necessity there. Yeah, I like how you connected us there to Article 6 on new obedience. And I think that in the first half of the show, that brings out the connection that you were talking about and the new life that we have as well, which certainly we want to make the point there that that means new life as we see baptism connected in with the funeral rite that we use in the church as well, right? We say that this person that has died already had new life in baptism. And I, I love that our Lutheran funeral rite begins our services, our funeral services there, bringing out that new life that we have in baptism. But the other thing that it does, and you saw that in some of the references you brought in, especially St. Paul talks this way all the time, that part of that new life then also brings forth good works. It brings forth that new obedience that we talked about in Article 6 already. And so I think one of the things that I like to highlight here in terms of this necessary for salvation, and I bring it out in Article 6, and our guest, Pastor Michael Shorman, did as well when we talked about that article, that you know, there's this difference between what we might call prescriptive language, that these things are required, right? You know, so that yeah, Jesus says do them, right? And so there is a requirement there on some level. But yet there's also descriptive, and we see that especially with that new obedience when it talks about that these good works are bound to flow forth from the faith that we are given. And so I think that's a helpful way for understanding this necessary word here as well, that you were leading us in that understanding there, that because of what baptism is and delivers, that's the way we understand necessary. It's, it's just bound to bring forth this, you know, of course we're going to receive this gift and use it in the church in that sense. I don't know. Did you have any further thoughts on that? That's kind of one way that I engage it. Yeah, no, I think that that's helpful. And I, yeah, I, I don't have anything to add to that. I think that's good. Okay. Well then, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Well, then uh, let's push forward here and get to something else that uh, we certainly want to understand, especially as you've already brought out. We still see this in various aspects of broad American evangelicalism, which is very dominant here around us, that this theology that we can connect to the Anabaptists, and I like how you already highlighted that what we see most common today, although I do have a lot of Amish and so forth around me here in Southern Illinois, so I do see it quite a lot around (laughs) me, you know, in that sense. But while they're not the ones that we commonly see around in American evangelicalism and various denominations aren't direct outflows of the Anabaptist tradition and so forth, yet at the same time, we do see that theology permeating here. And so that comes out when it comes to the talk about baptism of children. So go ahead and uh, help us understand why the Lutheran confessors here specifically highlight this baptism of children and how we can understand this from Scripture as forming our Lutheran confession on this matter. Yeah, and you know, this is a, as you talked about baptism and it's almost, there's nothing more Lutheran to talk about. I mean, I really, well, kind of two points that go along with that. When I was becoming Lutheran, it was sort of the last thing coming from that American evangelical environment. It was the last thing I really wrestled with. And I called the pastor that was confirming me the night before that I was supposed to have my confirmation. And uh, I said, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I, I've loved everything so far. I believe in, in the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. I, I believe that baptism even does something, but I, I don't know if I can get on board with baptizing children. And of course, why do we wrestle with that? Well, it's because it's because of how we understand faith. And so, that, you know, what you see really kind of fundamentally different between the Lutherans and the Anabaptists, and this comes through in, in our non-denominational American Christianity, is this understanding of what faith is and can a child have faith. And one of the common explanations as to why children don't have to be baptized is to say, well, they can't really believe. So there's this age of accountability by which then, you know, once they reach that, then they, they need to be baptized kind of at that point. But before that, they'll just be saved, you know, because they can't really have faith. So God's just going to sort of save them up until that point. Well, you know, that's not what we see. And this is something I think you see, of course, the Anabaptists are smaller groups, but the non-denominational churches are so widespread. And that comes from the, the Baptists in Britain in, you know, I think it's like 16, 1700s where they really come about. And I think it's because of rationalism, you know, that when you started focusing on on the enlightenment and rationalism and that kind of stuff, then everything about understanding becomes about an intellectual understanding. And so can children believe? Well, the question that is really being asked there is, can they understand? Well, can they rationally understand? Well, that's a a different thing. Or maybe the real question becomes, can they recognize that they rationally understand? You know, and that's a whole other step beyond that. But in any case, if you look at the explanation in the small catechism, you know, not Luther's catechism itself, but the explanation of it, there's some some great discussions about that. And as you look at the explanation in the small catechism, I think it has some great connections to address that. So the first is, this is question 303 in the the explanation, why should babies be baptized? Well, it says, first of all, babies are included in the words all nations. And I I alluded to that just before, just a minute ago. You know, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. That includes children. And you see this, you know, in the book of Acts, you see households being baptized. And people will say, well, that doesn't mean that they baptize the children. Well, as we think of a household, sure, it's pretty common that you're going to have, you know, a household of uh, husband, wife, and a 15-year-old and a 20-year-old, and that's it, right? But when the 
the New Testament, in, when they're speaking of households, uh, I often say it's, it's more akin to Downton Abbey, right? Where you've got not just the family that lives there, but you've got the servants and the servants' families and, and all that kind of thing. I always say I learn a lot about households in the New Testament times from Downton Abbey, even though Downton Abbey is much closer, because it's that arrangement like that. So, you know, so you see evidence of that understanding, not just in all nations, but in households. And so that's, a, I think, a really helpful point to make. Uh, and then it continues, letter B, babies are sinful and need what baptism promises, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that's something where, you know, as I was talking about sort of the age of accountability, I don't think that's something that we have a great scriptural support for. You know, I, I've obviously had people have presented passages that connect to what they view as, as an argument for that. Uh, you know, I've heard a couple, one, one of knowing the good and evil, and if I recall from Isaiah, and then I believe it's in Romans where Paul talks about the law and then and then uh, the end of the law, or, or, I can't remember which, which phrase it is there in particular, but I don't think that those really agree with what Scripture teaches broadly, which is to say that the whole of creation is under the curse of sin. The whole of creation experiences that curse. The whole of humanity knows that curse, and in particular, we know that curse because we die, right? The wages of sin is death. So when you see the death of infants, sadly, and, and it should grieve us greatly, but sadly, that demonstrates that they too are under this curse, that they too are sinners. And, you know, on a, on a kind of a, a less serious note, a less grave note, you can see this even just when you interact with infants. Um, you know, my wife always tells the story of one time changing my, my oldest diaper when he was not even four months old, and he looked at her with anger and kicked at her, right? He did not want his diaper changed. Or the time he was crawling a couple months later, and she told him to not touch the electrical cords that were on the floor, and he looked at her and defiantly touch them, right? You, and those of you that have children, I'm sure can recognize that. We see that there's this sinfulness. Is there an innocence that happens too? Sure, it, it's, you know, that it's not as, as one of my professors said, kids aren't as practiced at sinning, right? But there's still sin there. So they still need that promise. And you look at Acts chapter two, and it says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you, and for your children. Now, I know that my evangelical friends would say, well, it means that when their kids grow up that it's for them too. Well, I mean, I get that, but I don't think that's really what's being said there. And in view of that need, then it's still for them as well. And you see that you can make a connection with circumcision there, right? Circumcision was bringing the children into that covenant. And the same is true for baptism. It brings them into that covenant in Christ's blood, the new covenant by which we have forgiveness. So there's that aspect of the sinfulness and the need that they have. Um, and then it says the Holy Spirit is able to work faith in babies. Uh, and, and it actually has a great note after that, talking about not confusing faith with intellectual ability. But, you know, when it comes to faith, uh, and again, this is what I really wrestled with myself, was to say, okay, can a child believe? And, you know, what, what convinced me was when, you know, Holy Week, when Jesus is in the temple and they're bringing the children to him and the children are crying out, and they try to silence them. And Jesus says, have you not heard out of the malice of babes and infants, I have ordained praise. And that, you know, that struck me. It was something where I said, wait a minute, for a human being to properly give praise to God, there has to be faith. And that's what you're seeing there. And kind of two points we can make with that that agree with it are, first of all, that Jesus invites the children to come to me. He says, to such belong the kingdom of heaven, right? And of course, that seems Simple for us as Lutherans, we say, well, yeah, of course, but my evangelical friends say, well, yeah, yeah, you bring the child in prayer and that sort of thing, but that doesn't mean baptism. Well, 
You know, he's making the example of the faith of children. And what is that faith? It's the fact that you tell a child something and they believe it. You know, in some ways, my five-year-old probably understands the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper better than I do. Why? Because I tell him, this is bread, but this is Jesus' body. And what's his response? Okay, right? Now, as I say that, in full disclosure, I, I'm not commuting my five-year-old. You know, I know I know there are a lot of brothers that, that do, and I'm, and I'm okay with that, but that's not a practice I'm practicing. But that faith of a child understands that. You tell him, this is the body of Christ, and the response is, okay. It's not even how, why? You know, how does that work? It's, it's just, okay, that's the faith of a child. Uh, so that, that's one part of it. And the, the other thing that supports it is the recognition that whether you're two months, two years, or 92 years, faith is always created by the Holy Spirit, right? Faith is always miraculous. The fact that I believe as a 40-year-old is just as miraculous as the fact that God would give faith to an infant, but it's always his work. And so why would I, why would I not trust that God is able to do that work by his word in that child? So faith is something that we don't want to confuse faith with the recognition of faith. You know, we don't, I don't trust in the fact that I believe, I believe that Christ died for my sins and I trust in the fact that Christ died for my sins, right? So my child doesn't necessarily have to say, I know I believe, but I can ask him again, did Jesus die for your sins? Yes, he did. You know, what does that mean? Well, I get to be with him forever in heaven, right? Does he recognize, you know, well, I did do this bad thing and that means that I actually deserve hell and, you know, maybe not to the same intellectual extent that I do, but when it comes to the faith and trust, okay, yes, amen, right? So I think that's really important when it comes to the baptism of children is understanding those pieces to it. Yeah, they're concrete thinkers. Yeah. In some ways, I often jokingly say, faith is almost harder for me than it is for my children. I have toddlers at home, right? Because like you say, you know, faith is trust. That's what faith is. And children will trust so much more naturally. I mean, God has wonderfully created them that way. And that works to our favor, also to our disadvantage (laughs) at times as parents, (laughs) but certainly to our favor in training them up and laying a firm foundation for them, especially when it comes to the Word of God. And as adults, we tend to question things a lot more. And so, uh, yeah, you certainly see faith at work there in children, and Jesus himself praises that. And then, you know, connecting in with what you were saying there is as well, you know, when I often engage this with folks that have that real hurdle of infant baptism, especially when they're coming from these other traditions that don't practice that and so forth. You know, I just, I make it very simply. I say, can we recognize that children are sinners? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) and as you pointed out, we see that at a very early age. And I certainly don't teach my children to be sinners, uh, (laughs) but they bring that out. Yeah. And then once again, I think so foundational for us is that foundation that you lay for us in the first half there of, well, what is baptism and what does it give? And if my child is a sinner, which has the condemnation of death attached to it, as Romans teaches us, right? Well, why would I deny them this gift that can save their life, right? And usually you begin to see the walls kind of fade away when, when you make it that simple. And so I commend everything you, you brought in there. Uh, we have maybe about five, six minutes here left. Um, we could talk about this all day. And I mean, we could just do a whole show, maybe a whole series on talking about infant baptism and how we kind of confess this against the Anabaptists and things like that. Maybe we'll look at doing that sometime. And and especially with your background, maybe I'll bring you back on for that. Yeah. So by the way, for our listeners, as always, 
go ahead and email us, kfeo at kfeo.org. Any questions you want us to take up on that, we'll look at doing that sometime. I'd be glad to. Great. But uh, you also mentioned in kind of your overview for us, some of the things that we want to get into here. Uh, So we want to be sure to hit this before we end for today. Uh, You said that even while there's by and large agreement, especially in terms of things that we see in terms of baptism, while there's agreement on a lot of the points with the Roman Catholics, you did highlight that there is a little bit of disagreement as well. And so I want you to talk about that for a little bit for us here as well. Yeah, sure. Um, I think to kind of point to it succinctly with the disagreement. So in the Roman Catholic Church, you know, the kind of two parts that we would would have some disagreement with. Um, One, I think, is it was more of a hurdle probably at the time of the Reformation. Uh, and the other, the other would still be a point of disagreement. So the, the first part is how baptism works. Uh, you know, our understanding of baptism is that the word does this work in us. The Holy Spirit works via that word and creates faith. And of course, faith is the receptacle by which we receive the benefits of God, right? Uh, you know, I kind of think it, you can see it like a waterfall, right? When you look at how a waterfall falls down onto the ground, it actually carves out, you know, there's there's always pools at the bottom of waterfalls. That's because the water has carved out this pool at the base there. And the sacraments kind of do that, especially the Word. The Holy Spirit, through that Word, carves out this basin of faith by which we receive the gifts that He gives. So you have that understanding of baptism and faith, the Word and faith together. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, in particular, like I said, at, at the time of the Reformation, confessed it more with an understanding uh, in the Latin that was called ex opera operato, which means by the working of the work. So they said, well, you know, this just works because you did it, so to speak. And I say that that's not, they, they kind of, in Vatican II, I think, brought out some of the nuance with that, probably some in trend, but especially in Vatican II, you see that being brought out with some more nuance, acknowledging that if you don't have faith, that you don't get the benefit. But that's the first part of it, is this different understanding of how it works, that it's not just by the mere performance of the act itself that there is this work of the Holy Spirit in him creating faith in us by that. So that's the first part. The second part is that in the Roman Catholic Church, they speak of baptism as the first plank of salvation, and the second plank would be something like confession or or, or reconciliation, that sort of thing, and then you get the, the other planks in addition to that. And so when, let's say, something happens, and the Roman Catholic understanding is that you would fall into this mortal sin, and you would have to return to faith, how do you do that? Well, they would acknowledge with us that you don't have to be rebaptized. They would agree with us in that. But you rebuild the planks of the ark of your faith, the ship of your faith, by going to confession. And that's how you have to go through the rite of confession and then rebuild upon that. Whereas we say, well, no, we just we just return to the promises of baptism. In fact, as we talk about confession, which you'll be, you'll be doing here in the next few episodes, confession really is a return to those promises. It's something we should practice. You know, as Lutherans, we don't discourage people from practicing even private confession with their pastors. But it isn't that that is a required step. That's another good gift, you know, as one of the things I love that Luther says in the small called articles is that God is super abundant in his generosity. He gives his gifts to us through word, through preaching, through the Bible, through mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through confession, all these things, God gives us his gifts in these ways. And those, that confession in particular, that's a return to the gifts of baptism. So that's the other big part that's significantly different. I always feel like I'm rushing us forward here and (laughs) so forth. But as we have a couple more things here and just a couple more minutes to cover with you, you brought in, especially highlighting how we see present in American evangelicalism, that theology of the Anabaptist theology still pervading there and, and surrounding us. 
give us some other contemporary things that we see of why the Lutheran confession about baptism, what it is and what it does, is still relevant and important for us today. Are, are there any other contemporary matters that highlight that? No, for sure. One that really strikes me is, you know, kind of the, the hullabaloo that you see around the priest that was baptizing with the formula, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you know, if that's something you've been following, apparently this priest has resigned from a pastoral role and is now dedicating himself to finding all the, the children that he baptized with that formula, that they would be properly baptized and they would have to be properly married in the Catholic Church if they were married in the Catholic Church. And, you know, there are all these consequences with that because he said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Lutherans, you know, we say, well, is it perhaps better styled, so to speak, to say I than we? Sure, I think that makes logical sense, but the name was there, right? The word was attached to that baptism. Whether it was I baptize you or we baptize you, the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was there. That's the effective word. And the water was applied. So it really kind of simplifies things. And of course, that shows a difference between, I think, the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church, which is to say that in the Roman Catholic Church, there's a little bit more of a center around the authority of the Pope and the Church, whereas as the Lutheran Confession centers around the authority of the Word. And that's where all authority derives its power from, is, is that, that Word itself. Excellent. Also, as we wrap up the show today, then, how does this confession of baptism connect with what we'll see coming up here in the Augsburg Confession? Sure. So, Article 9 is baptism, and Article 10 is the Lord's Supper. And, of course, you know, as we look at this, you know, it all ties sort of together in, in Article 13, the use of the sacraments. But I think, in particular, to look at baptism and the Lord's Supper, you know, we see this understanding of baptism as, in a sense, this entrance into the church. And then that's God's gift of forgiveness and justification, union, new life. And then the Lord's Supper is the sustenance that he gives to us. And I often think of Israel with that. You know, in Old Testament Israel, they were, as Paul says, they were baptized into Moses uh, in those waters in 1 Corinthians 10. So they're baptized into Moses and they go in the wilderness. And after their baptism, what does God do? He feeds them and he sustains them with that food until what? until they enter the promised land. And that's that's our life. We are given new life in the waters of baptism. We still dwell in the midst of, of the sin-fallen world, but then God sustains us in that faith with the Lord's Supper until we enter into the promised land of his eternal kingdom. Absolutely beautiful. And so that's where we're heading next. Next week, we'll look in at Article 10 on the Lord's Supper, one of those great gifts that our Lord still gives us to sustain us in this life until the promised land, which is delivered at baptism. Beautifully summarized there for us. Thank you so much for joining us today, Pastor Matthew Zickler, and teaching us the Lutheran Confession of Baptism from Article 9 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a pleasure having you join us today. Thank you so much, Sean. It's been a pleasure for me, too. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>